Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode we're delving into the world of hauntology and if you're wondering what on earth hauntology is, it actually originated as a philosophical concept and put simply, it describes the persistence of our past presenting itself in the future. However, in recent years, the term has expanded far beyond that into more of an artistic movement, which explores the feelings of nostalgia, childhood disquiet and lost futures through music, art and writing. This branch of hauntology tends to focus heavily on a 1970s childhood, so who better to get on than Bob Fisher, the author and writer of a regular column in the 14 Times magazine called The Haunted Generation, which explores contemporary music, art and literature, which is inspired and influenced by these feelings of the mid-20th century childhood disquiet. And Bob also has a blog under the same name to complement this. So Bob and myself delve into quite a bit today with a heavy focus on scary and melancholic TV shows from the 70s all the way through to the early noughties. We discuss the fascination with old photographs when you're a child and how your perception of time at that age has a great hauntological effect on you. We get into when Bob realised his childhood feelings linked to the term hauntology and we also discuss the ideas of lost futures from the 60s right up to the present day. We also go off on a bit of a tangent about Bob's mobile phone um, intertwined with all of this. And as I was born in 1994, my childhood was during the late 90s, early noughties. So we do get into a lot of comparisons and differences between the typical 1970s hauntological childhood and how it can affect children born after that period and kind of how all these feelings end up bleeding in together. Just a quick note also before we get into today's episode, I apologise for the slightly static microphone sound on my end. I sound a bit like I'm I'm talking on a laptop microphone because I didn't check my setup as it's usually all ready to go. However, it wasn't on cardioid mode and I had the gain up really, really high. So uh, the setup was different to usual. It shouldn't take away from the conversation, I hope. And it does get a little better as it goes on. But I was just really excited to talk to Bob. So I was probably talking quite loudly as well, which didn't help when it was on the wrong setup. So the richness of a good microphone is lost. However, Bob's is sounds gorgeous. So all is well. But anyway, we'll crack on with today's episode now. And I really hope you enjoy it. I did want to just begin with what on earth is hauntology? Could you get that across to the listeners? You know, what does it mean? Where did this whole idea come from? This is quite a nebulous subject and one that seems to be changing all the time and it means different things to different people. I mean, the original idea of hauntology is one that was... conjured by the philosopher Jacques Derrida, who, who uh, you know, for him, hauntology was about the spectre of Marxism and, and the ghost of Marxism hanging over Western society. Uh, but since the early 2000s, it's been, I mean, the word probably more than the actual concept has been appropriated by um, a, 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 rather, a rather wonderful artistic movement, I think. Um, that is kind of 
it's sort of loosely centered around ideas connected to a 19 roughly a 1970s childhood can you tell this is very nebulous and very vague <laughs> and, that, and that's one of the many things that i like about this movement so um it's a movement of music, largely music, but certainly also um, literary and artistic, centred around a 1970s childhood experience that is kind of vaguely disquieting. But not just that. It's a, it's a movement that explores ideas of a kind of misremembered past. So elements of hauntology... Um, you know, you might find people creating theme tunes to 1970s television programs that didn't exist, but kind of feel like they did and almost convince you that they did. It's almost like a musical Mandela effect at times. Um, uh, there are elements of lost futures attached to this. So it's kind of the um, whole Fisher thing, isn't it? That's his kind of take absolute, on it. Absolutely, yeah. That, that it certainly was, yeah. And and that that idea of, you know, in the nineteen seventies, we we grew up with a feeling that things would be fabulous in the future, that we would live in this extraordinary utopia, this this almost science fiction society. And that this was literally around the corner. You know, you have these you have these wonderful films and, you know, they're out there on YouTube. It's kind of like they would be produced by town planners. And they said, you know, in, in the year 1981, a city for the future. And it's a city of monorails and jetpacks. So we were <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been promised this future that never happened. Um, and I think that tied in with kind of elements of like a kind like a, a patrician and, and rather benevolent but nevertheless possibly slightly overpowering state as well that is that is overlooking all of these things um it's you know it's it's connected with the idea of folklore being passed not through um an oral tradition in the way that it always had been but but through the new technology of television all of these things kind of mishmash into this 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 wonderfully evocative movement i think and it, and it's become i guess with any with any movement you get people who are very strict about their definitions of hauntology you get people that are absolutely keen to interpret it in their own ways and you get people that do not like the term hauntology at all of which i've come across many um so it's it's not something that you can easily pin down. It isn't something that is particularly attached to any genre of music. Or you know, Lots of it tends to be electronic music, but then lots of it isn't. Lots of it is folk music, or lots of it combines different genres. I think the vagueness and the way that it can be interpreted by each person that falls under its spell is something that really, really attracts me. Yeah, I have to say your article, that was the one that was like, I get this. This is, I get hauntology. And I know you, it's meant to be a 70s childhood and you can probably tell I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't born in the 70s. <laughs> I was born in the 90s, but I, ha right. I had experiences like that, that dreamy, fearful, that unease, yeah. the a, a lot of that relating to my childhood. Because I, I kept seeing, you know, obviously with the sense of place thing, I saw hauntology cropping up and I, I always kind of knew it was that lost futures thing and I and then one day I was like yeah I'm really going to try and look into this and I 
didn't particularly grasp all the the old school philosophical stuff but your article I was like uh you said something about like being afraid of ghosts in your grand's yeah. bedroom and I was like that's literally me when I was a kid <laughs> like all, all these all these yeah like all like all those kind of uh elements and um I that's the other thing because I don't know if other people who were born in the 90s experienced it because I must say like my dad did buy us a lot of old 70s 80s videos so I was watching a lot of all the old tv shows like Mr Ben the Wombles Button Moon all that kind of thing and (laughs) exactly so I'm not sure whether I've had that experience because I was being showed old programs or whether I would have had it anyway you know it's uh one of those I'm not not really sure about that's really interesting because like, like for a long time I thought that this was I mean I you know I that's certainly how I start how it started I think is in children that were brought up during that era exploring the feelings that they had during that era but and for a long time I thought that was it and and I thought in a, in a very parochial kind of way, I thought, oh, it's a British 1970s thing. It's particular to that place and that time. But the more I've looked into this and the more I've spoken to people like yourself, um, I've realised that it really isn't. And that I think... Now, it's funny, in that article, in that that, that 14 Times article that I wrote, I think it was it, I think it's 2017, yeah. um, I, I remember... I think it's it was Jim Jupp, I think, from Ghostbox Records, saying that, you know, maybe there's just something intrinsically strange about childhood and the way that it affects some people. And it, you know, it isn't something that is consistent with all children. You know, not everybody gets it. Um, but maybe there's just something in a certain kind of child that responds to certain things in the culture and society around them and gets these feelings from them. So do you get kind of hauntological triggers from 1990s and noughties things then? Well, I actually, I did have a few TV shows I, I wanted to chat with you about um, because I, I don't sure. I don't know if you'd remember any of these, but one, well, two that were made by the same people was, do you, do you, know, the, you know The Snowman and do you know Grandpa? Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely! Yeah. yeah, the grandpa one that was a real trigger for me because you know her grandfather dies in the end of it, and the chair's just empty, yeah. and that sort of shaky. Uh, the spoilers here. <laughs> oh, so yeah, but anyone who's not seen that, apologies. But um, <laughs> on it, the shaky kind of um, drawing of it all, and the fadedness, and yeah, I remember I was three or four, and I used to just stare at that it was almost like I could not believe it it was so hard to comprehend and we actually had the book of that as well and my mum in a couple of years ago said to me she was like you always used to want me to read you that book why and at the time I used to think I'm not really sure but but now I've obviously kind of read all into this hauntology it was almost that horror and shock Mm. of it all and the sadness to it and uh used to get that with the snowman as well because obviously he He's all crumbled up and melted at the end. So it's really interesting, isn't it? I think because I, I, I mean, that's Raymond Briggs, isn't it? Both of them. And I, yeah, like, that's I, it. That's it. I couldn't yeah. remember who it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's Raymond Briggs. And I grew up with, um, I think Christmas 1979, I think I got his book, uh, Father Christmas for Christmas. I had that uh, one which, as well. 
Did you? Uh, yeah. Which again is kind of there's this kind of streak of melancholy that goes through all of his work. And you're right, it's it's faded and it's a little bit, um, a little bit spiky and. Yeah, so um, again, I so I'm not sure if this is you know just a certain type of kid responding to a certain type of media, but I, I've spoken as well because I think um, like the format of things, the actual nature of the media can trigger these feelings as well. Because I get it again, like growing up when I did, I get that feeling. Um, and I can't describe it as that feeling, but I I, I literally it, like, know what you mean, though. <laughs> God, I'm glad I'm just waffling into myself here. Um, that feeling is something that I get from the look of like 16 millimeter film that's slightly grainy when I watch things like old children's film foundation films. Um, and TV of the era has a very distinct switch between like studio video cameras in BBC Television Centre and then outdoor scenes that are filmed on 16 millimetre. So all of that really got to me as well. And again, I thought that that feeling was something distinct to the media of that era. But then I've, you know, I've chatted to people who say, no, I get exactly the same feeling from the sound of like a dial-up internet modem or the Windows 95. Really? Yeah, like, you know, the Windows 95 startup music. Are these like 90s kids who are yeah. saying that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Funny enough, though, we actually didn't have a computer then, so. Right, <laughs> I okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you were saying about it being a certain kind of child. I really think that's true because, yeah. I don't know, were you quite like a sensitive kid because... I feel like I was, and I, yeah. I, I also this is this is another layer to the story. Um, my dad, he was super into spiritualism, and also like oh, okay. he was really depressed, so he always was telling me, you know, like, oh, you know, ghosts might visit you, blah blah blah. And I was a kid, so I was freaking out. <laughs> um, and then he'd also at the same time he was obviously a kid of the seventies and eighties, and he'd constantly be telling me those were the days we had so much fun blah 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 and I was watching all these programs from them and I also really had a love of Only Fools and Horses and I think there was a real comfort in it to me of just something okay it was an escape from I think I was you know scared and then he was telling me that these were the amazing days so I just really like loved all that and you know what you were saying about uh, you know, like the textures of films, and I lo- and I used to love looking at old photos, and I love that kind of graininess to them, and it felt like another era, and I wished I could have been born in it. That's how I felt. Oh no, you see, I was terrified of old photographs. Really? That was that, that was the thing for me. Now, one what, what, one of my uh, this is a this is a really big early memory for me. I think I would have been about six at the time. Um, and it was being around, it was, I was certainly at my grand's house. Um, and you know, as often happens when you're with older relatives, the photo albums come out and we had, we had a very battered, a very old brown suitcase in the family, um, that was just full of black and white photographs from, you know, I mean, going back to the thirties, certainly thirties, forties, fifties photographs. Um, I've, st- I've got it actually. It's been passed down to me now. It's really? in the spare room. <laughs> yeah, I have to keep it at a distance. I'm still a little bit nervous. But I remember going through these photographs and suddenly realizing, and I think because like death was a concept that I was only 
just really coming to terms with at that age. Um, the fact that that people died and and left us, and you were, you know, they wouldn't be around anymore. Um, and I suddenly realised as we were looking through mm-hmm. these photographs that virtually all of the people that we were looking at were now dead. But yet they, you know, they were. But yet, in a sense, they weren't because they were in our front room, captured in these photographs, looking alive. And I got, I mean, it's got, I guess this goes back to, it's, it's not quite Jacques Derrida, but it's certainly the spectre of the past, kind of hanging over us and 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 bleeding into the present. And I found that really unsettling. And it's curious when I when I look back at lots of the TV that I found affecting at the time. Um, they've got that element as well. Mm. Uh, the TV shows that I watched of elements of the past bleeding through, haunting the present. You know, so many. I mean, it, traditional ghost stories. They, you know, they're they're to a penny amongst nineteen seventies kids TV. Uh, but also things like you know, I, I, I've been rewatching Sapphire and Steel recently, and it's the the fourth assignment in Sapphire and Steel is about. Is about old photographs. Is is uh, 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 about at the turn of the century children escaping from old photographs and being brought into the present. It's extraordinarily unsettling. So I think there was this element in certainly in nineteen seventies pop culture of the past and a, a past that seemed a past that was recent to my parents and my grandparents, but that seemed very very alien to me in a way that I'm not sure would be applicable to kids in the same way today, purely because the technology had advanced so much during that period. And for me, seeing kind of faded sepia black and white photographs that was so different to the photographs we took, but were only from, you know, 30 years earlier, um, it just felt like like absolutely a different era was was smothering me and unsettling me and I, I'm not sure that I mean how, how 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 would you feel looking back you know when you look back at photographs in the 19 I mean let's say the god 1990 is 30 years ago god help me so it's the same <laughs> gap when you look back at photographs from 1990 how do you feel about them do they feel like a completely alien era no because um obviously I when I was a kid like I, I was born in 94 so I was looking at pictures from when my parents were younger so that would have been your like the 70s and 80s yeah okay so I actually like I said I didn't have a a fear in that I had like a comfort I felt like I I like this I like the warmth and fadedness of the photo and I like this I just had this feeling like oh it was such a great time and like I say I think probably the influence of my dad constantly telling me that maybe impacted me so I, I never really had a fearful feeling but as for black and white pictures, yes, I do relate to that because my my grandma had older photos and there's just something, don't you think how they all like pose for their portraits? There's something, the quality of that, yeah. there's something kind of, yeah, they re- it really feels like they're looking into your eyes or something. And like you say, you know that they've passed away and they were so alive yeah. and uh, in that picture. So Definitely, I don't know what it is about the black and white. There's some other quality to it. I think again, it's just that it's the format. Like, you know, like grainy 16 millimeter film, it's just a format that's very, very evocative of its era. 
but but one that I uh, I found really really haunting. Well, I guess uh, sorry, getting back to the question that you actually asked me ten minutes ago. Sorry, um, I, I think it is a certain type of sensitivity as well. I I well, I mean I wouldn't. I don't know. I wasn't a shrinking violet particularly. I was slightly shy, but you know I had plenty of friends. Yeah. Um, but I was I was an only child, and. Although I had a lovely childhood, and and you know my my parents were and are fabulous, um, it was one in which I was often kind of lost inside my own head, mm. um, and this is a big thing for me about that era. And I guess if you say you, because I think the internet has just changed all of this. But if you were saying as well that you grew up without a computer in the house, uh, I think the fact that we had time to explore these ideas in our head really adds to this. So I, I always use this example. If you watched, you know, we watched Doctor Who on a Saturday night in the 1970s, and it would be unsettling and it would be scary. And We'd all, I was doing pre VHS as well. So we'd all watch Doctor Who at the same time because mm. we had to when it was being broadcast. We'd all done our best to remember it as much as possible because, as far as we knew, we'd never see that episode again. Um, and then we had a week to play around with it in our heads. And we had a week in the school playground to reenact Doctor Who and to go over the scariest bits and to work out how the Doctor would escape the cliffhanger in which he appeared to be about to die. Um, so we had time. And I think because we had less distraction in our lives, uh, we had a kind of sense of stillness as well. You know, I, the, the the number of days that I spent as a child essentially doing nothing yeah. and essentially yeah. feeling bored. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that boredom really exists in the way that it did in the pre-internet era. Um, you know, you could You've always you, got something on now. Like you can always, you know, watch Netflix, have your phone on, pl- play yeah, games. It's yeah. like I know what you mean because I I do have a sibling, but for a few years before he was born, I was on my own for a lot of the time. And you do yeah. just like you do feel like you just sit around, and I don't even really you don't really do a lot to be honest, do you? Something else I was going to say to mm. you, you know now a lot of these old shows are on YouTube and you can look them up and stuff. Do you ever go back to the kids' shows and they're like four minutes long and when you watched it at the time, it felt like they were really long? Yes. Like you almost have no concept of time back then as a child. Time is longer. Yeah. And you, when you watch it, you cannot believe that that program was five minutes. Oh, completely. So I think your perception of time as a kid is very, very different because you don't have the frame of reference with regard to time that you have as an adult. So I remember, you know, the school holidays when you were a kid were six weeks long, just as they well, actually, I was going to say just as they are. No, no, they've been about six <laughs> months long in 2020. Uh, but, this, you know, the school, the school summer holidays uh, were six weeks long and it felt like a lifetime. It felt like you changed during that six weeks. You could go back to school in September feeling like a different person. Um, whereas now, you know, if you ask me, oh, what, what were you doing six weeks? weeks ago it would be something that felt like it was 10 minutes ago but i think i think your your perception of time as a kid is very different purely because you haven't lived for that long so you know if you're you know talk about the passage of a year which seems like it seems like an eon when you're a child because the passage of a year could mm. be you know if you're 6 years old then the passage of a year is a sixth of your life that's uh, you know that 
quite a yeah. proportion of your life. I was, you know, I'm 47 now. I don't know what I'd go. I can't even do the maths. What is a sixth of 47? It's about seven years, isn't it? Give or take. Um, getting on for eight. No, it's eight years. It's eight years. Oh, blimey. It's, you can tell it's been a long time since I did my times tables. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, eight, year, eight years is a sixth of my life now. And that, you know, so it's the equivalent proportion of your life as the school summer holidays. So, yeah, no, totally. The other thing with regard to that is that I remember being staggered because we had... You know, we had no information when we were kids about any of these programs. We just watched them when they were on, but we didn't know how many episodes had been made. We didn't know when they'd been made, particularly. Um, so, you know, I would, I would watch. I, I remember watching I, my heroes as a kid. My comedy heroes were Laurel and Hardy. And I had apps, you know, whose films were made in the 1930s, 40 years before I was watching them. I had no concept at all of them being. Of them being dead, God, I was a morbid child, wasn't I? But that never occurred to me, and that was that was quite a shock when I found out. But the other thing, sorry, I will get back to the point at some point here. Um, the the other thing was that I just I remember being shocked when I realised, probably in my twenties, that the programmes on TV of which I thought there were hundreds of episodes, there were there were thirteen episodes of Bagpuss. I mean, Mr. Ben, you mentioned Mr. Ben. I think that's the same. I think there were 13 episodes of Mr. Ben. Yeah, there's hardly any. Yeah. I, I had that one on video and I'd watch it a lot. And that, and it seemed like there was so many episodes. And I like I hundreds. have now, obviously, since. Yeah, I know. I know. And it's like, that was it. They only made one. Well, I don't know if it was one series, but it. I think it was. It was like nothing. Pretty. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like they made so I, I i've got to say mr ben was one of my favorites actually i really like that i love I used mr. to watch ben. that a it's lot kind of i love the fact that he, it's 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 literally transportative and the fact that he could go from a, a very everyday street into these fantastical realms and that's something that's really stuck with me like all my life that is the thing that i find most affecting i think is is that juxtaposition of the ordinary and the mundane and the utterly fantastical. I think it's it's one of one of the many reasons that I love Alan Garner's books so much is that he does that so brilliantly. And okay, you know, his books, although they've got fantasy elements, um, they're not set in a fantastical realm. You know, they're not Tolkien. They're you know, the elements of terrifying folklore manifesting themselves in in cheshire you know from a pub car park it's that that's just juxtaposition is something that i find really affecting and it it probably does come from mr ben that's probably where i got it from yeah i know you talked about bagpuss in your article and i have to say that was one Mm. i never watched and i know it's a classic so i actually did go and look at the little you know the intro of it and that is creepy as hell like no wonder you yeah. got scared so Isn't that it? girl emily was her name emily emily yeah, yeah. she was really creepy like, yeah i can imagine if i'd have watched that as a kid i would have got really haunted by that myself <laughs> gonna say maybe i should actually watch a few episodes you know see what i think of it now i mean it won't have the same effect perhaps but it's lovely when you come back to it uh, as an adult it's sort of not as dreamy as you remember it. I don't know if you feel like that with some shows. When you watch it back, you think, oh, it's really short. And I feel like I, in my mind, I remember it more twisted up. And I think I muddle the episodes right. and things like that. And 
it just seems clearer when you come back to it in a way. That aspect is part of the fun for me, I think, is that exactly as you say, if you clarify your memories too much, it can become a little bit clinical. It can, it can take the magic out of it almost. So, And it's like my my inclination always is to kind of catalogue things. I'm, you know, I'm one of those. I like things in order on a shelf. I like to know which episode follows which episode. I like to binge watch series from the start going all the way through. But I think there's something to be said for that kind of fuzziness of childhood memory. Um, and again, I think that's something that hauntology explores quite a lot is, is I mean, as I said at the start, the misremembered and the fact that be- because some of our memories of childhood are fuzzy and they're vague and we're not sure what we watched, we're not sure which episodes we watched or whether different episodes have become entwined in our memories. That's something that hauntology really explores, I think. And that's something that, you know, it's really effective at, at recreating and, and at recreating or creating false memories and almost convincing us that we experienced them the first time around because our our memories of that era are fuzzy anyway and kind of open to yeah, a very yeah. playful sort of manipulation um but with with bat with bagpuss in particular bagpuss was such a thing for me and still is such a thing for me i kind of do still get the dreamy feeling from bagpuss i don't I don't get it in the same way that I was four as I did when I was four years old. Because how can you? How you know? I'm forty seven. How? I mean, I wish I could recreate the feelings uh, that I had when I was four years old, but I just can't anymore. Too much experience. That is part, of it, isn't it? Because it's you lack any experience. You're like you say, you're so young. These are shaping your experiences. Yeah. These things that you're seeing, and yeah. also with the lack of internet, absolutely. You know, I guess kids now could maybe look things up and understand stuff whereas you just that's it that's it it's exactly. very unfiltered your mind and you just take what you see kind of thing at, at that age and we wouldn't see it again as far as we knew that's a big thing for me i think that that you say like, ki- ki- oh God, i hate saying kids today because i sound like my my grandparents but um, <laughs> yeah. you can- but you know I, it is it is a different experience i think and i i wonder if kids that have grown up in the digital era will have a different relationship to nostalgia because like you say if if a modern kid watches a television program and enjoys it or is affected by it in any way it's then very straightforward for them to research that program find out all about it find out who made it find out who wrote it it's very easy for them to find out other episodes it's very easy for them to watch that same episode over and over again whenever they like and because we didn't have that um i think that creates a kind of i think it creates a yearning i think it creates a a, a, an, an element of our nostalgia that is melancholy in its own right and it's and it's a it's a yearning for things that we've lost because we because we saw them once, we don't know what they were in many cases, and in and in many cases, because so much of television from that era has now been lost forever. You know, it's been wiped from from archives. Um, our memories are the only 
places that those programs exist. And I think there's something tremendously affecting about that. Um, and I think, and, all, and I, even though Bagpuss does exist, uh, you know, it's 13 episodes are available for you to watch at your leisure. All of those feelings are things that I do associate with Bagpuss because I found it so melancholy as a kid. And because it has that sense of yearning itself, you know, ba- Bagpuss is about lost things and it's about an era that is gone and yet somehow it's still here. You know, Bagpuss is not, it's not presented as a program that's set either in the present or in the past. I, I, it's once upon a time, not so long ago is the opening line. But when, you know, where was, was it, was it six weeks ago? Was it 70 years ago? It's never really specified. So I think all of those feelings that I have about yearning and melancholy and lost things are encapsulated now when I watch Bagpuss because it's about all of those things and about lost toys and artifacts turning up in this shop that appears to exist out of time and is populated by these strange stop-motion puppets. I like yeah. Bagpuss a lot, can you tell? <laughs> no, I thought you might have hated it, actually. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop rambling on about Bagpuss now. Was Bagpuss for you, like, that was another thing I was going to ask you, you know, when did you kind of realise all these feelings fit under that term hauntology? Like, when did you kind of make that connection of, oh, this is what hauntology is and I you know when did you make that connection the first thing I ever heard and I think I mentioned it in the article actually um I kind of I'd spent the 1990s thinking vaguely about these feelings and you know what you know what is that feeling how do you describe that feeling of watching BBC programmes for schools and colleges on a rainy Tuesday afternoon when you've got chicken pox. How do you, what, is there a word for that? There's probably a single word for it in German. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but is, you know, is, there, is there an easy way to describe that? That feeling of strange melancholy, of wistfulness, of fuzzy memory. Um, and I tried so many times to describe it to friends who would either just have no idea what I was talking about or would sort of say, well, you know, not uh, and not unreasonably would say, oh, yeah, the spooky stuff, Doctor Who and Sapphire and Steel. Um, so I tried to do that for a long time. And then in 1999, I heard a piece of music by Boards of Canada, um, the Scottish duo, um, and it's on their album, Music Has the Right Children, and it's called Roy G. Biv. And it was just, it was all of those feelings encapsulated in a two-minute piece of music. I really? cannot, yeah, I, I I cannot say that. what an, it's amazing. It was just, that, that was my very early 1970s childhood encapsulated in music. Uh, so that was my first kind of awareness that this stuff existed and that other people were clearly feeling the same things as me. And not only that, but starting to explore them in their art and their music. Um, and then I, I sort of, I, you know, I was vaguely aware of things happening throughout the, um, the, uh, the, the noughties. Um, and I certainly remember being aware of 
maybe not Ghost Box Records per se, but I was certainly aware of um, artists like the Focus Group, uh, Julian House from Ghost Box, and uh, Broadcast, um, or a band I liked enormously. Um, so I was aware of artists like that exploring these feelings, but it was probably at the at the at the turn of you know the current decade, about ten years ago. Oh no, the previous decade now, isn't it? That's terrifying. Um, around the sort of 2010, 2011 mark, when I really started to explore and, and deliberately, it was almost a deliberate decision. Right, I am now going to explore this scene in some depth, and that's when I started vociferously buying albums on Ghostbox Records and and Clay Pipe um, and labels like that, and and it absolutely. I, it's it's genuinely been life changing. I can't mm. I can't say what an impact it had upon me. It was something that I immediately knew spoke to me in a way that very little other music had spoken to me for a long time. Um, it really affected me at a at a at a very profound level. Um, and I kind of you know I, I I mentioned this before, but I was quite. I was struggling a bit with anxiety at the time and it seemed like a refuge from all of that. It seemed like a place that I could be that even though paradoxically it explored feelings of childhood disquiet, it felt like a cozy place for me to be and a reassuring place for me to be. And really I was like the, the summer of 2013, I just basically lived, I lived and breathed that music. I did not listen to anything else. Uh, uh, an album by John Brooks, who uh, you know, John records as the advisory circle for Ghostbox Records, but also it is recorded under lots of different guises. But also, uh, you know, it records under his own name, and he made an album called Shapwick that was just. I mean, you know, we're talking on the on the Sense of Place podcast here. Shapwick is about a very specific place, and it's a village that he passed through. Um, I think he was stuck on the motorway on the way back from a family holiday, and there was a you know a log jam on the motorway, and he just did that thing that lots of us have done, where you just think, right, I'll just take the next turn off because it's got to be better than this. And he found himself driving through. I think it's in. God, I should know this. Is it in Wiltshire? It might be in Wiltshire, but it might not be. I just really should know that. Uh, have a look at the article. Yeah. <laughs> you can. Um, and he just passed. Yeah, uh, he just passed through this village called Shapwick. Didn't even stop the car, but something about that place and that moment really spoke to him. And he created this extraordinary album that evokes the feelings that he experienced driving through Shapwick during the night. And that album for me, summer of 2013, was I I cannot describe how much that album meant and means to me. Oh, amongst a ton of other stuff, you know, I, um, uh, Jim Jupp's album, uh, uh, the Belbury Tales, his Belbury Polly album for Ghostbox, that was a huge thing for me. Um, artists like Pie Corner Audio, I discovered. Lots of releases on Trunk Records, uh, run by Johnny Trunk, who, again, this was stuff that reconnected with my childhood because Johnny is incredible at reissuing stuff from that era. So the album that I really found myself losing myself in was just a compilation of 1970s folk music called Fuzzy Felt Folk. 
and it's you know it's folk music for children made in the 1970s D- during the era when re- kind of quite spiky traditional folk music was seen as being entirely appropriate entertainment for the under fives um <laughs> and, and to get, you know that comes to in bagpuss as well i guess but all of that stuff just really coalesced for me and that I, that that era has been life-changing for me. That has, that has completely changed the direction of my life from that moment onwards. Yeah, I have to say with your article, I love that in it you describe the fact, because obviously you kind of think of hauntology as, like you say, the frightening elements of your childhood, the fearful, mm. and it and it completely is that. But I also feel the same as you, like there's some comfort to it too. It's both. It's the contrast of yeah. some of it's really comforting and and makes you feel good and then other elements of it makes you feel the melancholy the sadness the fearfulness Mm. when I was looking into this it it all seemed to be focused on the sort of fearful element but has anyone else sort of said that that they they get the kind of comfort oh no I think that's quite kind of I think that's quite commonplace um is it the what I like it's uh, by no means universal i mean i uh, for that article I, I i spoke to richard littler who who is the guy that does scar folk um he's a graphic designer and he produces these he ex- does all that creepy like uh he, he changes all the old 70s yeah. pamphlets and stuff absolutely yeah this guy like you know he's created this this world of scar folk which is a fictional northwestern english town um that's just dystopian and horrible. Uh, so he produces spoof 1970s literature, posters, pamphlets that reflect all of that, and they're brilliant. So I remember speaking to him, and he was kind of like he he will say he's basically it's kind of it's kind of trauma counselling for him. <laughs> <laughs> he he says no, I didn't. I, he said I, I was so scared of everything. He says yeah. That, like this, you know, he doesn't get that cozy feeling from it at all, apart from a sense of relief that he didn't die in a nuclear holocaust <laughs> or yeah. being or being or being electrocuted retrieving his frisbee from a pylon. Uh, you know, these things didn't happen to him. He gets a sense of relief from that, but he doesn't, I don't think, have any kind of cozy nostalgia from the childhood fear that he felt. Um, for me, I mean, it is about, I mean, certainly, a, a, you know, an element of it is about being scared as a child but that of again it's a personal thing for me that isn't the whole story i get a very different feeling the the feeling i get from cliffhangers in doctor who that genuinely terrified me and shook me and they did is very different from the feeling of melancholy and yearning that I got from watching Bagpuss. It's not the same feeling at all. Or indeed the the slightly, I don't know, the, the, the feeling of stillness and strangeness that I got from watching the test card on BBC One on a Tuesday afternoon or the clock that counted down to BBC schools programmes starting. Um, you know, was I scared of them? No, not at all. Did they give me a feeling of strange, still melancholy that I would have found it very difficult to describe at the age, but that I now find encapsulated in a lot of this music and art? Uh, Yes, they absolutely did. And I think that's different to the outright terror that I experienced. 
but uh, there's no denying it's all part and parcel of the same feeling. And it's not just related to, um, you know, popular culture of the era as well. You know, as uh, uh, Richard mentioned it, and it's certainly it's a, it's a big thing for lots of people of my generation. The Cold War was very real, and it loomed over our entire lives. So those feelings, I think, you know, I, I, I did think, I genuinely did think, and this would have been really common, I think, amongst people of my age, that I would at some point die in a nuclear war and, and, it, and it would not be that far away. Wow, yeah. And it might, and it might happen today, you know? Um, we grew up in the era when you would, be, you would be terrified of, you know, and this used to happen a lot, because we didn't have rolling news. If there was a breaking news story, a programme would be interrupted on television. I was, mm. you know, you'd be watching, you know, it's like only fools and horses or whatever. <laughs> and then it would stop and an announcer would say, we interrupt this programme to bring you a news flash from the BBC. And, and I, I guarantee like 90% of children at that point would have been thinking, shit, they've done it. The nuclear <laughs> yeah. war has started um, because it was so paramount in our thoughts. So so I think real life provides many of these feelings as well. And the fact that global politics, British politics, and just society in general was a bit dark and strange and weird. I think it all bleeds in. Yeah, definitely. You might not know these TV shows because <laughs> these are actually, I actually have a few from when I was a kid, like from not not 70s, 80s shows, the 90s. Did you, do you know Round the Twist? I was, uh, do you know what? I knew, I knew you were going to mention Round the Twist. Yes. yes. Oh my God. Strange I... things happen. Are you going Round the Twist? Yeah, yeah. And the one that always got me was when he pissed on the tree got pregnant and threw it up do you remember that one (laughs) i don't tell me about that go on so basically he just there's this tree i haven't seen it in so long and you know what it makes me want to go and look it back up again um and he there's like this magical tree woman and anyway he's just gone out i think like into the woods or the park or something one of the the kids and he wheezes on this tree and this magical woman says to him something you know oh thank you so much and she he gets pregnant and then he he's at school wow. and he starts going and he, and he throws up the baby that's how he gives birth oh my word no i don't remember that <laughs> i'm gonna look that up i'll send it to you because it, it was please that that used to freak me out so much because it was just like what the hell is this it was one of those things you know it like I'm not even a boy but it used to just make me think you know oh god with the trees you know you don't want to be like pissing on a tree you've got to be careful even though I knew it was ridiculous <laughs> but it just it kind of sticks with you a little bit that that kind oh, of element I used to watch I rather twist was shown here again it would have been it will have been the early 1990s because I used to watch it at university it was on on a I think on a Saturday morning possibly a Sunday morning when I was at university a university so my 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 memories of watching yeah. around the twist are of watching it with a, like an appalling you hangover hang <laughs> but you know that gives it a certain sense of of surreality as well when you when you watch things through a haze of having drank seven pints of guinness and a southern comfort the night before that that puts a strange strange twist so to speak yes yeah and there was and another one this didn't scare me but this was my brother 
So this was the Teletubbies. There was a, oh, yeah. a, a clip. Uh, there, yeah, there was a cliff in this where these this lion and bear come out on this squeaky little wheel things. Um, okay. And they were just doing some weird thing there where they'd be like, oh, I'm the lion, I'm the bear, and they chase each other and roar. And he would literally scream and run out of the room. And I mentioned to the, him uh, this to him recently because I, I was I was telling him, I was like, I'm going to do a podcast on hauntology. Yeah. And he was like, oh, my God, that freaked me out so much. And anyway, we looked it up on YouTube and Googled it, and apparently it really was a thing. A lot of kids got really freaked out wow. by this. Um, they wow. banned it because of that. Whoa. So, yeah, I know. I had no idea because I was a bit older then, so I wasn't really scared. But for yeah. him, it was yeah. one of those funny things because when he watched it back now and he's 20-something, he, he was still like, oh, my God, this gives me, like, a horrible feeling. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Are the, the Teletubbies was a little bit. It's kind of hallucinogenic, it is, isn't it? It really is. It's like, what the hell? Like, there's the talking flowers and these big these things that come out the ground, these speakers, and they have the... Yeah. programs on their bellies and they talk yeah. the baby's face in exactly, the sun as well yeah it was really quite a bizarre program really. and, quite, and again kind of tied in with the media of its era because if the teletubbies had been made in you know 1976 instead of 1996 then it would have been kind of faded and sepia tinted, I think, and the Teletubbies would have been a bit tatty and a bit moth eaten. Um, <laughs> yeah, they would have been. Yeah, it would have been like it would have been like Hartley Hare in Pipkins. Uh, it was a terrifying figure, um, but because it was made in the 1990s, it's kind of day glow and it's you know it's very bright. Um, and I think that's you know that's reflective of its era as well. It's it's just it's tied to that era. And again, it, I guess it comes down to you know you finding these feelings in things or a certain type of child finding these feelings in things that were that were around when they were growing up. So I dare say, you know, for you as a kid of the nineties, do you kind of see because stuff isn't generally like that bright and brightly colored these days is it i don't think for kids tv it's gone back a little bit um do you could, could do you get that kind of feeling from seeing very bright things from the 1990s i what do you mean like the the haunt, the, the sort of nostalgia yeah. and yeah i yeah i i guess i do but i kind of the funny thing is the tv shows i kind of remember from the 90s ironically uh are kind of ones that did scare me a bit Right. Okay. Another one was uh, the Demon Headmaster. Yeah. Yeah. Have you? Do you know that? I or? do. I, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I mean, it's obviously after my era, but I'm I'm aware of it. Yeah. Terence Terence Hardyman, isn't it? I don't know, but he's got the really like gaunt face and really yeah. beady eyes, and uh, and that used to scare me. And Wallace and Gromit. That was a that was a nice one for me. And okay. I, I did have that sadness to it because there's that you know there's that there's that scene in it where uh gromit where wallace makes friends with the the penguin and gromit, yeah, gromit's crying and it used to always make me cry yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he gets his little satchel on, on his on his stick that's right yes yeah um, oh no they're lovely did you watch things like did you see century falls and things like no, that no i don't know that did what's that impact on you Century Falls was um, that's it's 
Now, that must be about 93, I think, um, written by Russell T. Davies, who's, you know, brought back Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, um, and that's, it's a, it's almost a traditional 1970s spooky kids drama, but with a 1990s aesthetic to it. That's worth checking out. And he wrote another one around the same time called Dark Season. Um, again, these are things that I remember watching at university. Um during the, you know our, our our student house at university was obsessed with century falls we used to stop and watch it every time it was on that was that was kind of tea time viewing for us and even though we would have been you know we were 20 21 at the time um it was something that that really spoke to us okay that's great you no know, that's maybe the 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 early rumblings of my starting to, to think about those feelings in a bit more detail possibly those shows yeah and another you maybe again you probably won't know this one ghost hunter that was a cbc program oh no i don't go and tell me about that this one actually like i'll send it to you because i think this one would be good you might like it because also they do a they do at one point in it they go into the future to 2027 and again the aesthetics are all wrong it's like lost futures yeah exactly the late it was made i think this one was made in the late 90s so like i think like 99 or 2000 and again like i i re i actually did rewatch this recently because i used to really enjoy this one it was a that was one of those programs that i was afraid of but i loved it at the same time um and it's basically about this this ghost hunter and she Catch, she catches ghosts in bottles and there's like this shoe shine boy who's a ghost and the opening credits they were just <laughs> they just scared me they were really creepy this woman in a cloak with all these overlaying whispering voices and spooky music that one was a really um one I kind of loved and hated at the same time as a kid oh that sounds terrific and was this a literary thing for you as well I must admit, when I was a kid, I wasn't an avid reader. I was way more of an audio book. T- I'd go and get the famous five tapes from the library and I'd listen to them. Okay. What about you? Were you a bit of a book reader? Or- yeah, well, yeah, no, absolutely I was. Um, started out with the Doctor Who books that a, a company called Target um, just novelized. Again, we go back to the era when, when you thought you would never see these programs on television again, you know, it's... As far as you were concerned, they were broadcast once. Doctor Who was rarely repeated. Um, never even occurred to me that I'd be able to, to, you know, the idea of watching Doctor Who at my leisure, just being able to put any episode on any time. What? This is the future to be on the dreams of avarice. Um, so Target Books were, you know, they were, they were novel, uh, novella versions, really, of the TV stories. Um, so, and the only way that we had of reliving our favorite TV stories at that time. So I used to buy and read those vociferously, but then, um, yeah, as I, as I got older, as I kind of, uh, you know, got to the age of 11, 12, I did discover writers like Alan Garner, who I, I, I again, I, it's very difficult to describe the impact that Alan Garner's work had on me. Um, and still does have on me um and it was like i said before that 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 the idea of a fantastical realm or features and characters from folklore bleeding through into a very ordinary everyday 
just like like a you know a mishmash of time of different elements from different times different worlds really like that was just a, a like an extraordinary seismic moment for me reading reading books that it was actually started at school i had a wonderful teacher called mr millward who in recent years i've been back in touch with and he's still fantastic um mm. and he he read us in the school library um alan garner's book the weird stone of brisingerman um and i just absolutely captivated by it and that began a, a like a real love affair with alan garner's work for me and uh I, 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 talking about a sense of place the the curious thing is for me i i grew up in northeastern england in quite a rural area although quite a I, you can call it a liminal space if you're that way inclined. Um, I basically, I basically grew up on on the edge, like almost literally on the on the edge, on the crossing point between the town and the country. Um, I grew up in a what had been um, a, a small rural town called Yarm, um, and not only has it has its border always been disputed. Is it North Yorkshire? Is it Cleveland? Is it something else? Um, but it's also my 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 house in Yarm, the house that I grew up in. Kind of like behind it were the new estates of the 1970s, and in front of it were the woods and the fields. Um, so, and and beyond those woods and fields, a you know a short car drive away were the North York Moors. These extraordinary, like spectacular areas of completely remote moorland. So. When I was on my own, I would explore the woods and the fields around my house. And if I went on, if we went on family trips out in my dad's car um, on a Sunday, we would go to the moors. And all of those places I populated with, in my head, with the fantastical things that I'd read about in Alan Garner's books. Um, so, you know, so if I, if I walked in the woods, I would be anticipating at any second that goblins would emerge from a rock or that I would tap a boulder and it would split open and a wizard would welcome me to his underground lair. Um, <laughs> all of these things were in my head. And when I read the books, or when I, until a couple of years ago, when I read the books, I always imagined the events taking place in the countryside that I'd grown up with. So, you know, those moors, those woods, those fields. Um, but they're set in very definite places. They're, they're set in Cheshire, around Alderley Edge, where, where Alan Garner has always lived. Um, and it's only within the last five years, I would say, um, I've actually been to Alderley Edge. Oh, have you? <laughs> yeah, and I've been around all... And I've, 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 God help me and God bless me. And I, I still can't believe this actually happened. I've been around Alderley Edge with Alan Garner. Have you? Um, <laughs> I, yeah, who explained to a little group of us, you know, this is the place in this book. This is the place in that book. And it was totally different <laughs> to, you... all of, <laughs> to my, yes, the previous 30 years of my imaginings about these. It is a completely different landscape. So that's been kind of really interesting to have to, almost to have to reseed how those books look in my head. Really? Uh, which so I now so do. do you just yeah, stick to what you imagined or you've changed it? No, I've had to change it. Well, I've, I mean, it's just happened because I've been there now. 
but yeah, there's it's really weird. There's the it's in, it's in the second book actually in the Moon of Gomrath, and there's there's a sequence where, um, it's it's a chapter called the Old Straight Track, and and Colin, who's the kid in these books, um, he has to find uh, a a path that is only lit, um, on a certain night by by. The, by moonlight basically so he has to go to this point and wait for the moon to rise and then the path will become apparent to him it will be lit um and he has to run along this path and and pick a flower called a mothan now in my head that scene takes place on the north york moors it's it takes it takes place on bare remote moorland there are no trees <laughs> you know it, it is it is with the with the wind sweeping across uh, and I went. So, so, so I've been to Alderley Edge uh, with you know various members of the Garner family, with Alan, his, uh, his wife Griselda. Uh, I mean, they're both wonderful. I feel so privileged to have spent any time with them at all. Um, but I remember saying to them because that scene was something that was really potent for me. And I remember saying to them, "Where, where, where actually is the old straight track? Then, where were you thinking of when when you wrote that bit?" And it was, it's in the woods. <laughs> it's surrounded by trees. Oh. I was like, "Oh, that's that's not how I've been thinking of it at all." Um, so again, I've had to I've had to kind of rework that scene in my head. So it's been a it's been a really interesting experience. Um, so yeah, sorry, you did ask me. You just asked me about literary influences didn't you and that and i went off on what i went down my own old straight track him um, and bagpuss they're they're your guys aren't they they're your they, they are absolutely yeah they are they are they are my totems my spirit guides yeah completely it's funny what you say though about uh when you're sort of reading a book you do picture completely i do that regardless of what it might say how it looks and they do a description you just place yourself in somewhere you already know a lot of the time yeah you know when a, if a film comes out of a book you've read and you think oh no you look nothing like I thought or this is nothing like I imagined <laughs> it's yeah you kind of just go based on what you've got in your head your little world you kind of make up regardless of what the author's Completely. done I guess it's the same principle as, you know, when we were talking about children's perception of time, how it's very different because they don't have much personal time to draw on. Um, it's possibly the same principle as that. You know, when when I when I read a book that was set in the countryside, I could only draw on my own experiences of the countryside, which were generally moorland, the, the North York Moors. Um, so if something was set in the countryside, that's that's what the countryside looks like, and it was only it was only when you start to explore different parts of the country that you realise, well, actually, no, it doesn't always look like that. So yeah, I guess I, I guess everything, every piece of art, we relate to it in our own way, and we try and connect that. You know, that's what the human brain does, isn't it? Is trying is try to connect things and try to make sense of try to make sense of new experiences by relating them to old experiences. You know, this new thing is a bit like that old thing. So therefore we'll connect these things. You know, the brain connects those two things together. I think that's just what we do very naturally, but sometimes sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we have to remake the connections, um, which, which can be a joyous thing, I think. Yeah. I wonder if that's why we we constantly recycle the past and we never get the perception of the future right ever it's always it never the future we think that's going to happen it never turns out that way you know like I was saying 
even with that TV show I watched from like the late 90s, they try to predict pretty much seven years from now. Yeah. And again, they always go for the over futuristic look and it and it's never like that. It's so gradual and nothing flash really. I, I wonder if they're yeah, if they're is... ever going to stop trying to predict the future because they ne- they never really get it right. <laughs> the future's always disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you remember? <laughs> that's another one. Do you remember that episode of Scooby Doo where it's called the Year Two Thousand, and they were basically like in flying saucers and, like you say, the old <laughs> uh, train things that go around on the all of that. It was completely wrong. I, th- like, I think you can you can tell a lot about a society and a culture by its by its perception of what the future will be like. Because I think you do go through that. I mean, that for me is a very that's quite a nineteen sixties thing. Um, mm. Of kind of you know, oh we will because it was the space race you know we were going to the moon and it was like well of course you know if if we're going to the moon in 1969 then quite obviously there'll be people living on the moon by you know by about 1985 obviously we'll be go we'll be we'll have a we'll have a base on Mars by 1990 you know why why wouldn't that happen so I think that that kind of optimism is a very 1960s thing and maybe speaks volumes about about how we felt in the 1960s I don't know I wasn't alive then um but you know it was we we come out of post-war austerity and we were building for the future and then but I think by the time you get into the 1970s our visions of the future become quite dark and that's when you get those you know those 1970s programs that that are almost like the they're almost the negative side of that vision of technology as our savior so you get programs there's an extraordinary program called the changes from the mid-1970s in which I basically it's 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 Britain in this specifically, but Britain has turned its back on technology and just destroyed all of its television sets, radios, cars, anything that smacks of you know something from post industrial revolution Britain is destroyed, and not only that but seen as evil and as something. Uh, you know, if you if you can if you can operate a tractor, you're a witch and must be burned. <laughs> oh my touch. god! It's that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, believe it or not, this this was shown in the children's TV slot on BBC One. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that you know the vision of the future in the 1970s became somewhat darker. I think, and you do get these ideas of well, actually, maybe we won't be be flying round on a monorail. <laughs> and, and having our own personal jetpacks, maybe we'll all be dead or living in a post-apocalyptic nightmare. I think. I, so you you can you can tell a lot about a particular era of the past by how the people in that era thought the future would pan out. I think we're probably, ironically, now the closest we've ever been to something of that sort with like Elon Musk and Mars and. <laughs> You know the the whole yeah. the thing. You know that we're going to have smart vehicles that drive themselves, and that is pretty scary yeah. to me. I don't know about you, but you know it it does seem incredibly futuristic even now. You know, just to to think of that. 
Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, I, you know, I just, I just don't trust technology, not out of any fear of it. I just, my experience is that it just doesn't work very well most of the time. But maybe that's, maybe I've just had a succession of really, really unreliable printers. Um, I think all, of, I think all of my, I think all of my views about technology derive from the fact that I've never ever had a good relationship with a printer. I relate um, so to that. I, the printers are an absolute nightmare. Like you buy brand new ink, top them up. <laughs> oh, sorry, inks run out you know it doesn't work or it won't yeah. connect to your Just laptop pr- you know, thing. it's awful to coin a phrase here you had one job exactly. print something for me <laughs> and a number of you know, the, the, the hours that i've wasted trying to convince a printer that all it has to do is put those words on a piece of paper for me just do it just a friend of mine once got so pissed off with his printer and he is a fairly mild-mannered kind of chap he took it out into his backyard and destroyed it with a cricket bat <laughs> Oh and he God. said it and he said it felt fantastic afterwards so that's so my so my my relationship with technology i think is possibly soured by the fact essentially that i'm kind of old and i don't trust technology so i kind of share your your nervousness about smart cars and and jump jumping in jumping into a into a piece of technology that will then take me a 70 miles an hour down a motorway when quite frankly i can't even get a printer (laughs) to to print three pages of a document no do you know what i'll do it myself thank you very much yeah and, and i've heard also um our fridges might be able to talk to us and chopping boards that tell you how to chop and i just think Come on, like you know, oh, no. how lazy are we going to get? Like, are we going to have no purpose at all anymore? These machines do. No, I don't want any of this. I mean, to be quite honest, you know, there's like quite a lot of people I don't really want to talk to me. I don't want the fridge to start doing it. <laughs> exactly. I just thought to myself, what's the fridge going to tell you? Is it going to be like, oh, you've run out of. Sp- I don't know, cheese or something. God, I, I hope really it's not small talk. Gonna... I hope it's not casual conversation. Oh, hi, God. Hi, hi, hi. Love of your fridge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hi there, Robert. How's your day been? Hey, Bob, I've been keeping all of your milk cold all day. Oh, my Right, God. well, thank you. I'd be hideous. I don't want that at all. I basically, I am essentially a control freak, and I'd like to be in control of, you know, there are there are many aspects of my life that I feel in control of at the best of times, but I would at least like to be in control of the appliances in my kitchen. We'll see how things go, because obviously this is talk at the moment, and who knows, maybe it won't happen, but I think the driverless car thing, they're properly set on that. They want that to be a thing. Yeah. So, and also if we go to Mars, I'm not going. I'm going to stay here. I definitely no, don't want to go. My, no, definitely not. My kind of, I mean, again, this is possibly an overly pessimistic view of the of human nature. I kind of think we've made we've made enough of a mess of this planet without inflicting ourselves on other planets just lit, like it's fine. mars is fine it's got you know it's great mars is kind of all right as it is let's not go there and start digging it up and and dropping mcdonald's wrappers all over it it doesn't need it oh i know good, good luck to mars it's got a nice treat yeah exactly it, yeah, God help it. <laughs> i also just think with the whole mars thing how are we going to live up there are we going to be living in glass just never going to go outside and be able to breathe the air and just I, nah thanks I'm 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 not going it just sounds awful yeah do you know I I I tend to be with you on these things like you you, you said that like the future is never quite as exciting or as extreme as we predict it to be I kind of think that 
uh, you know, that will probably apply here as well. Will will people be able to set up home on the surface of Mars? No, I don't think they ever will. Uh, as much as much as we like to think, as much as we've we've been conditioned by the TV that we've watched over the decades to think of the human race living in Baker foil suits and having robot dogs in a in a hermetically sealed bubble on the surface of Mars. No, I I suspect in fifty years' time we will still just be like slopping around our houses in jeans and tracksuit bottoms. That's the other thing. Even when they try to predict the fashion of the future the, the truth is it never changes everybody's been wearing jeans for yes. god knows how long now it's like <laughs> nothing drastic's yeah. happened and they think you're going to be wearing like silver suits with space hats and god knows what yeah that was one of the great things i loved about when russell t davies took over doctor who actually um and um I think that was that was a big thing for him was that the future had had always looked ridiculous in science yeah. fiction by and large. Um, and so even when he set things hundreds, thousands of years into the future, people were generally just wearing ordinary clothes. You know, there's an episode of it's it's, it's his second episode of Doctor Who. It's called the end of the world, and it's set. You know, it is it is set as the sun goes supernova and and destroys the earth. Um, so it's it's five billion years in the future, um, and there's a plumber in that episode, and she just comes to fix the the central heating yeah. or the air conditioning, and and she's just you know she's she's blue, she's she's a, a blue skinned alien, but she's just dressed in like plumber's overalls and a baseball cap, because his philosophy was like why would you know you wouldn't suddenly say all oh, right it's the year five billion we'd better start dressing in silver tinfoil like no you just you just wear what's comfortable and practical and he thought it would be the same and I'm kind of with him on that yeah no that's a much better take. It, it would be interesting if we had this conversation in 30 years time and we're, we're still not on Mars and right <laughs> now we're living through this new era of what we, we hope to be it, like you say we'll probably all just be slobbing around our houses yeah <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think the future is is possibly always a little bit more boring than you anticipate it will be I'm kind of happy with that I'm, no, I'm, me too. I'm content with my mundanity yeah the other thing is it's it's kind of every time there's talk of these future things there is there is fear in people and i wonder if that's why we never really progress because we all truthfully just like kind of like it how we are oh that's an interesting thought yeah i mean at the same time you could look at it computers are a big advancement but it at the same time it's we can we can deal with that 2010 was kind of when the whole smartphones touch screens that really took off and now when you think, God, it seems like when did we never not have those phones, you know? Mm. It, it was impressive, but kind of it became normal so yeah. quickly. Well, do you want me to shock you here? Because I still don't have one. Really? Wow. Yep. Have, you, I've have, never you, owned... have you gotten through life without that? Isn't it curious? It is possible. Believe oh. me, I've never even thought about it. I own a mobile phone. It's a ve- it's a very basic mobile phone. It's the mobile phone that your great grandmother would have. It does text. <laughs> it does phone calls. That is pretty much all it does. It's probably got snake on it somewhere if you look closely enough. Um, so I I've never had a smartphone. You're you're lucky you got away with that because I just that's a thing I feel like probably for me it's because of the generation away. I, mean, I don't think that's something I could get away with. Yeah. Yeah, I just I think I quite I, they seem to be quite addictive, yeah. and I've got quite an addictive personality, and I will. So, like, basically, if if I'm on Twitter, then 
that essentially means that I'm sitting in front of the actual PC. It's a computer in my spare room, which is where I am now. Um, and I, you know, and I am, I am, it's a thing for me to be online. Like I have to go to a room and turn a computer on and, and be online. That's um, nice that you're like that. It is honestly. Yeah. I honestly, I don't think, I don't think I could live any other way. And it maybe ties into the anxiety that I mentioned earlier on, where I think you can be overawed by and overwhelmed by information, by things just being there all the time and being connected to everything all the time. Um, I would find that a very difficult way to live. Um, I, I don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, 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 I love being, I love chatting on Twitter. I do it a lot. Um, I love having the internet available to me. Um, I'm by no means a Luddite in that respect, but I need to be able to move away from it and to say, well, actually, I'm now not available, um, you know, for the rest, uh, you know, when, and because so much of it is tied up with work for me as well, because um, I write and, uh, you know, work on the radio um, and all kinds of things like that. So much of the work that I do is attached to social media. Um, and I would essentially never stop working if I, I, you know, if I had a smartphone with my emails, uh, available to me and Facebook and Twitter, just all there at any time, then I would effectively never stop working. And I don't, I know some people manage to cope with that and to still create a decent work-life balance, but that wouldn't work for me. I just know what I'm like. I know that I'm kind of obsessive and addictive and that I wouldn't ever be able to turn it off and that if I tried to watch a film on an evening I would still be checking my emails every two minutes to see if that person had responded to that work email and I would still be in bed at three o'clock in the morning seeing if seeing what was happening on Twitter and if I could contribute in any way and that's just not a healthy way for me to live I need to be able to ration it so so for that reason, I just I've just never taken the plunge, and I don't. I know it's not a life that works for everybody, but for me, it absolutely does. I don't feel like I've missed out on anything because I don't live in that way. In fact, if anything, I feel that I've possibly kind of gained something over the last ten years. Um, and I've never, when I've mentioned it to people, like you know, people are generally quite shocked, like you were, and then but then so many people say. Oh, I wish I could do that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, actually, you can. You know, it's fine. I think for some people, it's hard because once you start, yeah, I know. There's I this know. expectation that yeah. you reply. But yeah. do you know what I do? I always have the internet off on my phone. Right. So then, say, I don't know, say in the morning, that's when I would turn it on and check emails sure. or whatever or Facebook and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not constantly getting notifications because I must admit, I don't really look at my phone that often. And I think that's the best, like I've got it there, but I'm not addicted to it. Like, I think if you have, you know, the internet on and the notifications coming through constantly, that's yeah. when people don't get off their phones. And I must yeah. say, probably not with everyone, but certainly with my circle of friends, a lot of them are kind of veering off Facebook and stuff nowadays. They're not kind of just going on to WhatsApp, which which is basically just text, a text conversation yeah. for free. So yeah, yeah. I feel quite yeah. content with where I'm at with it, but I know for some people it is, yeah, like some people are, are, they cannot stop, they cannot get off their phone. And I think, like you say, it's that 
if you've got your work on your mobile, you never yeah, stop working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just... I, I know. I just know what I, I. I'm not blaming anybody else for this. I just know what I'm like. Yeah, and absolutely. I, and I would be that person without a shadow of a doubt. There is no question. Um, I'm so kind of obsessive about things. And again, I go. You know, it it goes back to what we mentioned earlier on. I think about having that that space and that time just to think about things i think that's really important and we've possibly we've possibly lost a bit of that with the smartphone revolution that we're never we're never just sitting doing nothing or just walking somewhere doing nothing um just kind of being i'm just sound terribly hippie here but just kind of being in the moment just kind of, you know be yourself for a, for for a short time just be somewhere, walk somewhere, be in the countryside, walk through the town, sit at home staring out of a window at the rain running down the window pane. Just do nothing. Just think or don't think. It's it's healthy, I think, to have respite. I think it depends on the kind of person you are because I do do that stuff. In the morning, I I sit outside and I just, like, well, because obviously I'm here in Australia at the moment, so it's sunny. So I sit out in the sun and have my tea. And then like I do go for walks. And when I go for walks, I don't, I know a lot of people listen to podcasts or music. Yeah. I tend not to do that. I just like to be in my own head. Although I have a smartphone, I get, I completely get what you're saying because it's an overwhelming amount of information and it just never stops. I do quite like the silence at times and just like you say look out the window yeah. be in my own head I'm, I'm very comfortable with that and I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with that anymore I read an article not that long ago about people all falling asleep with Netflix shows on and they can't sleep without it and it's like that's yeah terrible well I suppose it's not terrible but I can't imagine that yeah no absolutely yeah, no, I, I mean, people falling asleep on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, like their phones still on as they fall asleep. Um, yeah, no, it's just not. I, yeah, I don't make any judgment on anybody else's lifestyle. I just know that it's one that wouldn't work for me and that would be quite damaging for me. I think so. I've always, I've always steered clear of it. So far, I, it's, I don't feel that I've, you know, that my professional life or whatever has been hindered in any way by it. Maybe that day will come. Um, nah, you'll be fine. You've, you've you done think, this. Yeah, yeah, you've done it this long. I reckon you'll be <laughs> you'll be all right. The only thing, like this this summer, uh, you know, this year with with lockdown and everything, um, is the only time where I've started to think, oh, do I need to do this? Because so many people have said to me, oh, could, you know, would you be available for a Zoom interview? <laughs> well no i don't think i am really actually i don't think i've got the technology to do that um that you know this year i've started to think oh god am i missing out but i don't know maybe i'm not zoom is just basically the new skype i don't know where that came from but yeah. since lockdown everyone's like oh zoom conference zoom this zoom that like i'd never <laughs> so, heard of it until lockdown me either it, it almost seemed like it was ready made for lockdown it just suddenly appeared it's like Hello, everyone. Oh, there's, a, there's a conspiracy theory in the making here. Exactly. Oh man, this is this has been the time for conspiracy theories. I'll tell you that, hasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah, a few too many for my liking. But there you go. Yeah, I was actually um, watching X Files last night, and it was one of the oh, wow. the new uh, the newer seasons. I think the 2016 yeah. one, and it was the last yeah, yeah. episode, and it was actually really quite creepy because it was all about a pandemic and this sort of thing and I was like oh my god 
And uh, funnily enough, some of the things they said in that actually sounded like a lot of the conspiracy theories at the moment. So <laughs> I thought to myself, if people have been watching X-Files and getting their <laughs> conspiracy theories from this, I'm not sure. It's possible, isn't it? I was intrigued by the way in which stuff from popular culture kind of bleeds through into our perception of the real world. Because the other one from the X-Files that I always found really interesting, our perception of like UFO sightings over the years have absolutely always reflected the popular culture image of ufos at that time yes so when when people saw ufos in the 1940s and 50s they were the traditional flying saucers you know a a disc with a bump in the middle of it that was straight out of the b movies of the era and then when people saw ufos in the 1970s and 80s they were kind of close encounters ufos these huge flashing things that descended on mountainsides and then when people saw ufos in the 1990s they were kind of x-files ufos like gray (laughs) aliens taking them hostage so it's so maybe it's the same with conspiracy theories maybe maybe popular culture influences conspiracy theories in that way as well i don't know it's not i'm not a big expert on conspiracy theories it's not something i know an awful lot about um but i can imagine that happening i think you're right though definitely i mean x-files has been on popular culture so like it's had such an influence oh no they are fantastic that's a very kind of because that, that when I speak to people who get the the haunted feelings from the nineties, the X Files is a program that crops up quite a lot. I think. How many people have you sort of talked to kids of the nineties who've got this hauntology feeling? Is it a lot? Or because I'm quite interested in that to know if there's other people from my generation who've sort of had these feelings as well. Yeah, certainly a few. Um, it's yeah, no, I think it is a thing. What they kind of described is it with TV programs or music or Every, like, just, the, just the mixture of everything in the same way that those of us that grew up in the seventies, um, you know, it's it's not it is TV programs, but then it's not specifically TV programs. It's ancient folklore and the past as disseminated to us via the TV that we saw. It's society itself being a bit dark and strange and not as open as it is now. It's the landscape of the 1970s that was, you know, new housing estates being built on ancient fields and in ancient woods and old housing still having that post-war feel to it, you know, buildings that... I knew buildings in the 1970s that still hadn't been rebuilt from the Second World War. And, you know, everyone knew houses that were boarded up and that you were warned to stay away from. So all of that coalesces into the 1970s, I think. Mm. And from speaking to people who grew up in the 1990s, I find it's a very similar experience. It's not just the television of the 1990s it's like everything about the 1990s so but i you know interestingly um i've spoken to lots of people who and i you know i think in, including yourself who not only get those feelings from their 1990s childhoods but also can find an appreciation of these feelings in the eras before that, you know, in in the 1970s, 
Um, I was chatting with somebody on Twitter not that long ago, and they were saying that they're same as you, I guess, that that their dad had videos of 1970s programs that they watched in the 1990s, and you know this person completely empathized with the haunted 1970s feeling but also applied that to their own childhood in the in the 90s and their teenage years in the noughties so i think we've almost got we've almost got a kind of multi-layered hauntedness going on here of not only can you appreciate the hauntedness of your own childhood but you know you can at least get a sense of the hauntedness of previous generations as well and maybe mm. that's maybe that's because the media of those previous generations is now available you know if you hear somebody my age rambling on about bagpuss or children of the stones or whatever then you know it is now just possible to go and find that thing immediately and watch it so maybe it's just accessibility um or maybe it is as as we said there is a certain type of child or a certain type of person that will find these feelings in in whatever they're exposed to from whatever era and it's you know and I do it to a certain extent you know I can I was born in 1972 but I can find you know I can watch something like Quatermass from the 1950s um or you know, hammer horror films from the 1960s or, you know, just kind of non-spooky stuff, general grimy British films of the 1960s. And I can find a sense of nostalgia in those, even though it's a nostalgia for an era that I have no personal experience of at all. In fact, I almost weirdly find, I almost find the nostalgia for the, the era just before I was born or just before my memories start, I I now find that, I think, more affecting than the nostalgia for my actual memories. So that period of about... 19, of, from about 1969, 70, 71, 72, 73, I find that really evocative and affecting, even though I have no mm. memory of that era at all. It's almost like a kind of nostalgia by proxy. So maybe it's the same for 90s kids as well. Is that more recent or do you think maybe that's the subtle influences of your your parents perhaps? Possibly. You know, like the old pictures and did they, you know, did they ever talk about their youth or anything? Oh yeah, God, yeah, yeah. all the time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same with um, mine and I think that really rubs off on you a yeah, lot. Yeah, I think it does and it gives it a mystique as well, I think. Again, it's that thing of it of it being out of reach of that yearning yes and, that's literally you know, it, not, isn't it yeah not just a yearning for something that you experienced but have lost but a yearning for something that you didn't experience but because it's kind of quite close because my parents can tell me about it it feels like it's just out of yeah. reach and there's something very affecting about that feeling i think so yeah with 90s kids i, d- I do find it I do find it increasingly interesting to speak to people that grew up in different eras about their experiences of these feelings because I think I'm I think I'm coming round more and more to that theory that it is there is just something about childhood or about a certain type of child that gets this and that that it speaks to them and there's nothing wrong if that doesn't happen but I think there's I think there's something in that. I th- I think there will be children being born now who 
you know, in in 30 years time, will be looking back at their childhood in 2025 and finding something strange and haunted and, and elusive about it. And I find that quite reassuring. Yeah, I'm quite excited to see if kids of the internet who had it from day dot, what their experiences are and what their yeah. haunted feelings are. Because I, I, like you say, a lot of it is the dreaminess. You forget it, you see it once, you can't look it up, whereas they can, but maybe they'll still have it to a degree. Because I, I was actually just thinking then, yeah, even with the internet, for example, websites like MySpace or how the internet used to look, the internet has actually, you'd think it would never change, but it, totally. it has. Like there's... No a nostalgia for that like it doesn't look how it used to and your memories of it are different so completely and and bits of it are missing like even you know yes again you assume the internet is permanent oh it's on the internet therefore it's there forever but how many websites just go they just vanish because people don't keep up the payments for the hosting or they just lose interest or they abandon their blog and their blog gets deleted social media accounts that are a record of people's lives you know, people delete them. They go, they delete years worth of posts and photos on Facebook and, you know, they just nuke their Facebook accounts. So I think, I think even though the relationship with nostalgia will change because the, the way in which we live our lives changes and is changing and will always change, there's always going to be, I suspect, a hauntedness and a kind of yearning for things that no longer exist. And there will always be things that no longer exist. Even if we can watch, even if we can watch every television program that we've ever seen over and over again, you know, we can't, we can't visit every social media profile that we've ever seen over and over again. No. We can't reread every email that we've ever received over and over again because we delete them because they go because hard drives fail because nothing is permanent. Mm. I think there's something in that. The nature of the nostalgia might change, but the feelings that it evokes, I don't think do as much. You know, sometimes like, the, which is kind of rare now, you get those rare occasions when you might come across an early 2000s blog and it makes you feel nostalgic. Yeah. You see it and you're like, oh my God, I'm yeah. in a different oh, realm yeah. of the internet. Like, I've gone back in time. Completely. So it, it is happening. Like it's happening. Because and, it's um, 20 years ago, you know, plus. Yeah. It, uh, totally. When yeah. you look at like old GeoCities websites that people built from scratch and, you know, you, you can see them cached sometimes um in kind of strange you know there are these kind of google cache sites i don't know a lot about it but i know it's possible to kind of revisit dead websites and they look completely different they've they're gaudy they've got flashing lights the fonts are all over the place they're not designed um exactly it's, yeah. it is an absolutely different it's a different internet landscape and and maybe we don't see that as much because it kind of changes gradually but it's as much of a change I think as going from you know black and white television to color television or of going from you know analog 16 millimeter film to to digital HD plus you know it's 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 that change in format it's interesting it is interesting and I think it's difficult to know how it'll pan out yeah, I get I do get that melancholy feeling when I you know like when you see websites like that and it's got yeah. their last ever post with yeah. the 
date and the time and you just think, oh, what happened to this site? Where have they gone? And yeah. it does give you a sense of sadness. And you, even with YouTube channels sometimes, like you come across people who haven't done a video for years and you think, where are you? What happened? Like, I hope you're okay. And Exactly, yeah. And uh, like posts on forums as yeah. well. You know, I've been a member of lots of internet forums over the years and you get, you know, regular people on them. And, uh, you know, and a part of this is, it's anonymous for lots of people mm. you know we don't we don't necessarily know who these people are and I, you know i've interacted for years with people on internet forums and you cultivate a kind of strange virtual friendship that you know it, it's absolutely rewarding but i don't know who they are i don't know their real names i don't know what they look like um and then these people can just vanish and you, you find yourself thinking well did they just decide that they didn't want to post on that forum anymore or or did they die and yeah, i've no way of yeah. and i've no way of knowing that i don't you know maybe they did but i know i uh, maybe maybe they were ill and the forum was like a lovely thing to do while while they were enjoying you know what time they had left and they just didn't want to talk about that on in public i don't know i there's something there is something sad about it and i think yeah, the, 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 the temptation is to think of the internet as permanent and it's just not, it's not at all. No. Well, I think we'll round up there, but honestly, I've had a really amazing <laughs> chat with you. Me too, me too. I've loved it. Thank you for yeah, asking. Yeah, no, I'm so glad to get to talk to you because like I said, for me, your blog, as I was trying to like understand hauntology, that was the turning point for me. And I was like, yeah, I get, this was me as a kid. <laughs> I just relate to this so That's much. That's brilliant. So. I'm so flattered, honestly. I'm I'm really that that article in particular that has so that's been a life changing article for me because I don't know. Did you did you find it on the blog? Is that where you saw it first? Yeah, I saw it on the blog. I I, I also really love your blog as well. I got to oh, say, thank you. Because that that article was published in the Fortean Times magazine. That's where I first yeah. wrote it, and that and that has just been like everything. Everything that's happened to me in the last three years, I guess, has just come from that article, and it's been it's been genuinely thrilling and. Uh, you know just so heartwarming so thank you thank you for being so nice about it and for for reading it and and telling me and asking me to do this so there we have it i really hope you enjoyed today's show i had a great time chatting with bob and if you want to have a read of his blog you can find it at hauntedgeneration.co.uk for anything else sense of place podcast related please head over to senseofplacepod.com and also today i think I've only plugged it once before so I'm going to do it again but I do have a Patreon page. I don't have any tiers so for as little as a dollar which is 76p when I last checked you can get access to trailers and information on the upcoming guests before anybody else. I've also started doing episode extras so this is extra content to complement the episode you've just listened to for example i've done one for this with lots of details on and links to tv programs we've discussed i did one on the medieval graffiti and i've got uh, images accompanying that and more detailed information so it's not a must but obviously it would be a really great help in maintaining this podcast with the cost of hosting and running the website and you know just imagine that 75p rolled down the back of the couch and you're going to get loads of extra stuff instead of finding those dusty old coins down the back of the couch a week later (laughs) 
If that's not your thing though, that's completely fine. But do consider giving the show a rating review because that also really, really helps. Other than that, that's all from me. I hope you have a great day, morning, evening, whatever time it is where you're listening and I'll speak to you again soon.